0: about sin, we understand that the way in which we engage in sin day by day is oftentimes foolishness like swimming with sharks. We are inviting our own destruction. We are uh, pursuing sin in such a way and we oftentimes don't think about it like we do when we're wading out or paddling out on that paddle board thinking, hmm, when was the last shark attack on this beach? But the truth of the matter is, is that when we flirt with sin, when we engage continuously in sin, we are actually flirting with a greater danger than any fish in the sea. Because sin not only destroys our body, but it destroys our soul. It separates us from God. We see uh, passages, uh, when I was a youth pastor, I used to, uh, this was one of my go-to passages for teenagers, um, in Proverbs chapter 5. It reads, My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander. She does not know it. And now, O sons, Solomon says, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. Now that's just one sin mentioned in the Bible, but sin in itself is the path to destruction. And we have seen in the life of Israel the way in which that is a reoccurring theme in the Old Testament showing us a struggling people that are grappling with the effects of the nature of sin in our lives and the great and beautiful mercy and grace that God bestows those who sin and rebel against Him. That is the picture, that is the summary of the Bible. That in spite of our sins, even while we are yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. And that is the beautiful picture that we have seen through this book of Ezra. Remember, if we can go all the way back to Ezra chapter 1, we talked about the fact that Ezra was not a book about Ezra. It was not a book about the people of Israel, it was a book about the faithfulness of God throughout the midst of the people of Israel living as exiles in this world. And what a beautiful picture for us, as we've seen in his sovereignty, in his graciousness and love, in his faithfulness in spite of their sin, God has remained faithful throughout all history to show us the undeserving few His love and grace. There's a pretty famous and well-known passage in Isaiah 59 that tells us that our iniquities have made a separation between us and God. And your sins have hidden His face from you, so He does not hear. Now that word uh, separation in the Hebrew is badal. It's a word that we're going to focus on tonight. Because it's interesting that God and man are separated because of this great sin. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve that has been passed down throughout all generations. We are born into this nature of sin and therefore there has been a separation from the beginning with us and God. And they're continually is a separation between us and God, a division, a severing of one thing from another. And as we've learned from this, um, these last few weeks, that even in the spite of sin, God prepares a way for us to bridge that separation and be restored with God once again. And we know that that comes through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament particularly reminds us that God cannot dwell with sinners because of His holiness, which is too pure to look upon evil. And so since God cannot dwell with wickedness, God provides a way for us through Jesus to be justified, as we've been singing. To be reconciled with God. To have the the righteousness of Christ imputed or, or, or given or gifted to us as humanity or as, as God's people so that we might be uh, uh, pure in the eyes of God. God is the one that makes us pure. God is the one that calls us holy so that we might, sit, we might stand in his sight again. So what's interesting about the word separate is that as God's people, He commands us then to separate from sin. So that's the great irony, is that in sin we are separated from God, but as He calls us holy, as He purifies us in a relationship with Him, then He then calls us to be holy as He is holy, and the the command for us is separate from sin. And this is what the great message, this is the great message that is needed for the church today. That as God's people, we would live in such a way that we see sin, as we talked about, we hate sin, we're broken and, and appalled by sin, and in the process of seeing it as the Word of God exposes it, we leave its presence. We turn away from sin. And as Jeremy so eloquently uh, introduced for us, that's the word repentance. That we would so greatly see the sin in our lives that we would confess that with our mouths, but we would not just use words, we would literally turn away from the very sin in our lives. And that is what, church, we will see from our story today about the people of Israel. That they demonstrate a repentance. A separating from sin. So as we look at this passage this morning, I want to just navigate us through two things when it comes to true repentance. And that starts with a verbal commitment to faith in God. In our lives as believers, we have entered into this relationship with God through faith. That we have verbally committed to faith in God. And that we continually trust and put our faith and trust in Him. In the, uh, chapter 10, we see the people of Israel acknowledging their sin and again, coming in and verbally committing, confessing their sin uh, and their, their act of rebellion against God and verbally committing to their faith in Him. We kind of pick up in chapter 10, at the end of this remorse and this uh, this burden that Ezra has for the people. Ezra is broken over their sin. And that sin, which we will see in this chapter this, this week, for review, is that, that the people of God had continually intermarried pagan women, bringing in... In their own nation, a a Jewish nation, a religious nation, the pagan worship and the false worship of false gods. And God had called them to separate from these things. He 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 had allowed them to escape captivity. He had allowed them grace to once again revisit and resettle the promised land. And here they are once again falling into the same sin. Ezra is broken, and in the beginning of chapter 10, the people of God become broken over their sin as they cast their faith upon God again. Look at verse 2. It says that this, this one of these leaders that was with Ezra, addressed Ezra saying, we have broken faith with our God. And we have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Let us therefore, he says, make a covenant with our God to put away all those wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of God. And let it be done, he says, according to the law. Isn't it interesting that in these moments of repentance... The very people that had violated the law of God are now saying, let us do what the law of God commands us to do. That is what the Word does within us. That is what the Spirit of God does within us. That a true heart of confession and a true heart of repentance is a heart that desires to obey the Word of God. Even the very Word of God that we had violated prior to that. This is what it means to live as believers, to live in holiness, that the Word of God would so be the thing that exposes our sin, that is the great offense to us, and yet it's the very thing that we desire to live by. Where does that desire come from? It's only by the Holy Spirit. Listen, let's let's put this in real terms. The last person that offended you at the supermarket or at work They were rude to you or they were offending you in some way. The last thought in your mind was, I need to spend more time with that person. I need to to get to know them a little bit better. They were so rude to me. They hurt my feelings. Let's spend some time together as a family. That's not what you say. And yet the word of God, when it exposes our sin, a true repentant heart is the very heart that yearns to live by the very word that has exposed sin to them. And this is what these leaders were doing. This is a true confession of faith in God. That by trusting in Him, you are also turning from sin and turning to the very Word of God which guides us and directs us. And so they were willing to once again make a covenant with their God. They were once again willing to put away the wives and the children, these foreign wives, in order to be obedient to what God had commanded. And they call Ezra, in verse 4, they say to him, Ezra, arise, for it's your task. We are with you. Be strong and do it. What are they asking Ezra to do? Well, they're asking Ezra to be the spiritual leader of the people To lead them in such a way that he would stand before the congregation and the assembly as a whole, and he would call out their sin to them, and he would lead them into a restoring, a restoring of the covenant with God once again. And this is the difficult task of leadership, to call people to repentance. And here Ezra is even putting his faith in God to say, okay, I'm going to be faithful to declare the word of God and I'm going to be faithful to trust the power of the word of God and to leave the results of that to God himself to do a great work. So the people were putting their faith in God, turning from their sin, and here they're going to call Ezra... To lead them to restoring the the covenant with Yahweh once again. And in verse 5 it says, Then Ezra rose. And he made the leading priests and the Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as as has been said. And so they took the oath. So see, we see that they are confessing their sin. They are committing to God in faith. They are asking for, for action to happen. And what's interesting is, is that the, the way in which they are verbally confessing. They are verbally, they're, they're caught in the moment and they're, they're, they're calling to arms their spiritual leader to do great things. But what we know from experience in our own lives is sometimes we can fall into the emotion of, of words, but there's not really true action in other words, repentance can be a great stirring of emotion of I'm going to do this and I'm going to turn from sin and, and I'm going to do these great things uh, for the Lord. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to leave these things behind and I'm going to follow after Him. And sometimes in, in your life, and I know in my life, in the lives of people you love and care about, sometimes those words fall flat. They're never carried out. And so in, in the verse... Uh, first five verses, these are great strong words. We're praying and, and hopeful that these are true words. It says that they took an oath. If you'll remember, that in, by the time we get to Jesus' day, oaths or promises made before God had been watered down. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has to address the religious leaders because oaths were taken, and every time an oath was taken by the Jews in that day, they were having to swear by heaven and swear by earth and swear by the grandma's uh, pearl necklace and swear by all these things of value. There was like this promissory note that had to be attached to an oath. And the question was why? Because their words had no longer be- been truthful anymore. No longer could their yes just be yes and their no be no. Oaths were being abused. Oaths were not taken truthfully or not spoken truthfully. And therefore the the common practice in Jesus' day was to add some promissory truth or promissory note to it to make it valid. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, he says, I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven or... For it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no, anything more than that comes from evil. And so as we think about repentance, let me challenge you this morning to think about your confession of faith As you turn away from God, let your words be true when you speak to God. Let your confession be things that you carry out before a holy God. That they don't just sound uh, beautiful and flowery in your prayers only to fall flat moments and hours and days later when nothing is fulfilled in what you have said. Because as people of God, we are called to speak words of truth. And these oaths that are made have already been broken by Israel and the Jews. Let us be a people that examines our hearts in such a way that when we confess our sin to God, when we are speaking words of confession and faith in God, that we follow through. so that the the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and redeemer. So in verses 7 through 11, really, or excuse me, 6 through the end of the chapter, we see the obedience take form. They've not just confessed these things, they've not just said to Ezra Ezra their leader let's 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 uh, let's make let's take action let's be strong and courageous in fighting against this sin, but for the rest of the chapter, we see that play out and we celebrate it Ezra in chapter uh, ten verse six goes and withdraws to pray, spending the night fasting and mourning over this Faithfulness, or faithlessness. But then in verses 7 and 8, he, he makes a declaration, a, a proclamation, sending it out to all of Judah and Jerusalem so that all the returned exiles in that area that had returned from captivity, he was calling them to assemble back to Jerusalem and stand account for their sin. It says that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and there were great consequences in verse 8 if they chose to not attend. It says, if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property would be forfeited, and he would be banned, or as we think about today, excommunicated from the congregation of the exiles. You know what that means? They would literally not be allowed to come to the temple and worship. They would be outcast. He was literally addressing, as a spiritual leader, the great need for repentance and the seriousness of the offense and this commitment as the leader of these people. Ezra is willing to confront this sin without apology. And he calls the people to come and, and to stand account for what they have done. Not shying away from the challenge sometimes when we see our family and our friends falling into sin. And we know that we need to confront them and we know that we need to talk to them. But we shy away from that because it's a painful and difficult thing. But Ezra is willing to, as, as he's as he's. Challenged in verse 4 to arise for the task that he's strong and being willing to call to the uh, the Jewish people to account for their sin. And so we're told in verse 9 that the men of Judah and Benjamin scattered about around the area of Jerusalem. Some scholars believe it was no more than 50 miles because they were saying you have three days to get here. So it had to be somewhat of a quick journey. They weren't going to set a a, a traveling date that was unattainable. And so they gathered together, it says, in the ninth month, on the 20th day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. Now, as you follow along in your dates, they're, they're now gathering in the ninth month on the 20th day, which is middle of the winter. And in this area, it's the rainy season. And so, they're sitting in the freezing cold, the rain pouring down, and the Bible says that they are trembling not only because of the physical environment, but the spiritual environment as they are being held accountable for their sin. And verse 10 and 11 is probably the key verses in this passage. Look at what Ezra says. In all boldness, and all faith in the power of of God and His his Word, he stands before them and he says, you have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make your confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers and do His will. What is His will? Separate yourselves from the people of the lands and from the foreign wives. The rebuke by the, the spiritual leader, by the priest Ezra, was simply this. Turn from your sin. Separate yourselves. Same Hebrew word, badal. Leviticus 20 tells us that God says you are my people and your job, your responsibility is to separate yourselves from the people of the lands. They didn't do that. So once again in God's mercy he is declaring through the mouth of his servant Ezra separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the foreign wives. Now this is a kind of a, a problematic Stop sign in the middle of this passage. A lot of people have a lot of disagreement with what's described here. So, pastor, what you're telling me is, is that God was ordaining these people to divorce their wives. And the answer is yes. Absolutely. Well, how, pastor, is that not a contradiction in Scripture that says that God hates divorce. Well, let's spend a couple minutes looking at that. Because we know that the Old Testament paints a beautiful picture of marriage, the establishment of God, and the gift of marriage to the world. Even unbelievers enjoy the beauty of marriage and the gift of marriage and the marriage union even if they are outside of Christ. It is a gift to them by God. And it's only in the context of a relationship with Jesus Christ do we see the greatest fulfillment of marriage. And when we use, when we we think about the word divorce, we oftentimes, we we balk at the idea that, that God would 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 so ordain or allow marriage to happen, and we think of passages like Deuteronomy chapter twenty four. In Deuteronomy chapter twenty four, there was this uh, this challenge in the Old Testament for Moses saying, "If if you see any indecency in your wife, then you and you write a certificate for her, uh, a certificate of divorce for her." Then and he, and he lays out this long, uh, I guess, plan for that. I want to ask you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4 in your Bibles so we can look at this. This is typically what happens when we get to these passages. We need to understand the context of some of the other ones. Deuteronomy chapter 24, look in verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife, and marries her. If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and he puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house... Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife then her former husband who has sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin upon that land and the Lord your God is giving that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance Now a lot of times people read that and they they feel as if God is allowing and ordaining divorce to happen there, in which I would disagree. Clearly, God is uh, addressing divorce in the community of Israel, but by no means does Moses ever, ever, ever command divorce to happen. That's never a command by Moses in the people. He is simply dealing with A situation in which a a certificate of divorce is written to a woman who had some indecency. He is providing a way in which the community would deal with this situation. He's not promoting the situation. Nor is he commanding it to happen. Matter of fact, the issue in Deuteronomy chapter 24 is actually not divorce, it's indecency, it's unfaithfulness. It's the act of unfaithfulness in the marriage which a certificate of divorce occurs prior or after that. The prophet Jeremiah even uses a, a, a divorce as a metaphor. Look at Jeremiah 3. I'm going to have this on the screen. Jeremiah 3, 6 and 8, through 8, he says, have you not seen what she did, the faithless one Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought after she had done all that she will, return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of the uh, of the faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with the decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. What is Jeremiah doing? He's using this metaphor of divorce as a, or this picture of divorce as a metaphor for the unfaithfulness of Israel. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he in two is challenged with what does God think about divorce? And as you study Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19, you, you come to understand that, that the Jews had this perception about divorce in the land. And there were two major teachers, there was Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai, and each one of them taught two different views about divorce for the Jewish people. Okay? One of them taught the, the the liberal view. Rabbi Hillel was the one who taught the Jewish people that any indecency that you found in your wife was means for divorce. It didn't have to be unfaithfulness intimately. It could be the way that she addressed. In the community, the way that she talked to you, the way that she cooked your favorite meal. It was a very liberal view to say, hey listen, don't worry about it. If you find any indecency, and the word indecency was the liberal word, then you may divorce her. Now Rabbi Shammai, he taught a very conservative view. And the the argument that Jesus has to address in his ministry is where do you fall in these things? So let me have you turn then now to Matthew 19. Let's see what Jesus says about divorce. And then I promise you I'm going to tie all this back together to our, our story in Ezra. Notice in chapter 19, verse 3, That the Pharisees come to Jesus and test him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now Jesus does not even address divorce. He addresses marriage. Look at his answer. He's not going to get into this debate. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said, well then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? In your Bible if you write in your Bible circle the word command. Because this is the this is the misunderstanding of the Pharisees and the religious leaders Moses never commanded divorce. This is what this was the the teaching of the of of the uh, rabbi Shammai, that there was a command to divorce in indecency. There was never even a command. And he says again, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus is shoring up and, and uh, giving a solid foundation to the, the idea that God hates divorce. He hates it. He is reassuring the people that God desires for marriage to be cherished, to marriage to be faithful, to, for marriage to be lasting a lifetime between a husband and a wife. But the problem in Ezra is that God is dealing with one particular situation. That once again, in the book of Ezra, it is not commanded that divorce happen. But it is definitely described in that situation that it was necessary as an act of repentance from sin. So if you want to leave here today and look at this thing with Ezra and say, well, Ezra, in in the book of Ezra, God allowed for uh, unbelieving spouses, pagan spouses to be the reason in which divorce happened. Well, then you're going to have to overlook in the book of 1 Peter and in the writings of Paul and others where God says through these writers that you should not divorce your unbelieving spouses because the New Testament was the final word. See, what we have in Ezra is not an issue about divorce. It's an issue about repentance. God hates divorce. But you know what he hates more? An offense against his holiness. He hates sin. He hates his glory being shamed and run through the mud. He hates the disobedience of his people. And so let this be very clear today that back in Ezra chapter 10, although God allowed in this moment and and through the mouth, called these people to separate from their wives. These were pagan wives. These were idolatrous wives. What did these women deserve? They had rebelled against God. They had turned their back upon God. And God graciously allowed them to be divorced from their husbands and not destroyed by the people of Israel and the Jews there. No, this issue in Ezra should not be taking our focus away from what the true message is and it's about repentance, how we live in such a way that we turn from sin. As I was studying this week, I made another connection that I thought was pretty amazing. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus also, in the Beatitudes, deals with adultery and divorce, right? I have this up on the screen. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus dealing with adultery. And you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Let's continue. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose not one of your member, or th- that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus goes from, in Matthew chapter 5, talking about the sin of adultery and lusting after women, and then makes the connection to divorce. Why does he do that? Because he knows the heart of these religious leaders and these men... He knows their sin and their watering down of the law of God so that they were saying, hey, we can divorce our wives for whatever reason we want. Why would they do that? Because of lust and the adultery in their heart. That's why. Because if I can get a, my wife and, and give her a certificate of divorce and go live the way that I want to live, then I am gratifying the, the sins of my own heart. And right smack dab in the middle of verses 27 through 32, Jesus gives us the most beautiful picture of how we should deal with sin. We deal with it radically. That if your heart is lusting after someone else, you radically tear it out. If you're... Life is is so engrossed in sin. Whatever it takes to radically deal with the sin in your life, you do whatever it takes. Whatever pain it may take, whatever resources may be wasted, sin must be destroyed in our hearts and lives. And this is the call of the believer. See your sin. Allow the Word of God to expose it and to deal with it radically. William Hendrickson Hendrickson says, dilly-daddling is deadly. Halfway measures wreak havoc. The surgery must be radical. Right at this very moment and without any vacillation, the obscene book should be burned, the scandalous picture destroyed, the soul-destroying film condemned, the sinister yet- Uh, intimate social tie broken, and the baneful habit discarded. In the struggle against sin, the believer must fight hard. Shadow boxing will never do. And what I love about Ezra chapter 4 is that we see this beautiful picture of these people willing to commit to radical sin surgery. In verses fourteen through seventeen, we see the, the the whole assembly gathering before the people, or before Ezra, and it says, "Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and the judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us." Here they are, willing to commit. Now they're they're complaining because it's cold. They're complaining, they're saying, hey, this is going to take a long time for us to do what we need to do to, to really truly handle this appropriately, but we want to make sure that it's done. So can the officials, can the leaders of, of the community, can the elders and the, the heads of the houses, can they assemble representing us and through a process, let us sit under their judgment? It's going to take a long time, they say. But we're willing to submit ourselves because we realize our sin and we realize that the wrath of God is upon us and we're willing, we're willing to do whatever it takes to deal with it. And so that's what it did. They spent the time necessary to purge the sin from among their midst, separating from it. And so in Ezra chapter 10 as they sit on the, it says they, on the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. And from verses 18 through the rest of the chapter, they literally record the very ones who had committed this offense. Over 111 different families represented in the community of, of Israel of the Jews that had committed such an offense. And the application in this passage is simply this, that as the community of believers in the church today, we too are called to purge sin from our midst. To live in such a way that that we would be serious about sin. That we would know that, that sin is not permissible in the sight of God. And that we would do whatever was necessary we have seen the beauty of calling people here in this church to account in their sin. And in calling them to sin, or calling them to account because of their sin, we have seen the beauty of restoration here. Where people have come to Christ as God worked in their heart, as they saw their conviction and their, and their lostness and they needed Jesus. And we give God all the praise and glory knowing that He does that work in us. That we can no longer tolerate sin in our church. And likewise, we should no longer tolerate sin in our lives. We as believers are called to go and examine our hearts. And in so examining our hearts, not just commit to, to the Lord uh, a, a faithful commitment with words, but to put action to our commitment. To turn and radically remove sin in our lives. Don't play with it. Don't rationalize it. Don't surround yourself with people that are going to encourage you to hold on to it. Be radical about it and remove it. I want to close with the illustration of the people of Corinth. Paul had a lot of serious, sinful issues to deal with these people. And as he dealt with them, through four different letters he wrote to them. Two which are recorded in the New Testament. He's dealing with sin among their midst. And he caused them to see the beauty of his letters as a way in which God brought about true repentance in the hearts of the people. And he says in Second Corinthians chapter 7, he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I did not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Church We have to understand that we 're probably all guilty of worldly grief if we 're honest with ourselves. Worldly grief is being saddened because our sin has been exposed and it embarrasses our family, or it, it, it tarnishes our reputation or it even has some physical effect upon us that causes us to lose a promotion at work or Causes us embarrassment in our neighborhood. But as Paul says, worldly grief is temporary. That sick feeling that you had in those moments where your sin was exposed goes away. But true godly repentance and godly grief is when our hearts are so broken with sin that we act. And we act in such a way that we see our sin exposed, we turn away from it, and we cling to Christ as the only source and forgiveness and hope that we have where those sins will be forgiven. And that we so long for the Word to correct us and rebuke us and teach us, knowing that in this correcting and in this discipline that God has done through His Word and His Holy Spirit, we are being changed to look more and more like Jesus. So, godly repentance and godly grief is just a process of our sanctification as we belong to Jesus. And so, I want you to evaluate your own heart. As Paul says that we must examine ourselves, we must test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Examine your own heart and and ask, how do I deal with sin? Does sin drive me away from Christ and His Word? Or do I confess it? Do I commit myself again to God? Do I turn away from that sin, radically dealing with it, clinging to God's Word as a source of nourishment and spiritual change? Am I a person of godly grief or worldly grief? And either way, there's hope in Jesus. There's hope in Jesus because Jesus saves and he forgives and he changes our hearts to yearn for him and yearn for his word and yearn for his correction and discipline. And as we see in the life of Israel, in this moment at least, God brought about his glory through the repentance of a remnant of the nation of Israel. And for that we give him praise as being a faithful God. I'm going to pray and Stuart's going to come now and lead us in the Lord's Supper. As we look to Christ And his great sacrificial work for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven we thank you that you are faithful even when we are faithless. And through the study of this book of Ezra you have reminded us of your goodness in the midst of our pain. That even in the consequences of our sins that we face day by day God you show mercy. And the ultimate picture that you have, the ultimate work that you have shown and revealed to us is the work of your Son. And we come now, Father, to celebrate this great work that we have through Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sin, a righteousness that we don't deserve. We celebrate his great sacrifice as a way in which we only and completely can be saved. And so we thank you for him and for our study of your word over these months. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What a great sermon for us to come to the Lord's Supper, to the table of communion, which uh, we're about to take. And Nathan, if you would put on the uh, board the uh, slide. Mm, it was in the...